This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit kuiper.org to download this book or purchase a physical copy. The Politics of God and the Politics of Man Essays on Politics, Religion and Social Order by Stephen C. Perks Copyright 2016 Stephen C. Perks The Kuiper Foundation Taunton, England Chapter 5 Socialism Section 1 Historical Misconceptions In a newspaper article from the Catholic Times dated the 9th of November 2003, Robert Doyle relates how Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez, Roman Catholic Archbishop of Tecogigalpa in Honduras, Central America, who had apparently been tipped as a future Pope, had attacked capitalism as, quote, savage and called for a return to the principles of socialism. According to the report in the Catholic Times, the Archbishop said, quote, The historic achievements of the welfare state are being dismantled and, as a result, the differences between the rich and the poor are growing. End quote. The Archbishop said further that, quote, Whereas states won a protagonist role on the economic terrain in the 20th century, today their power is decreasing more and more. End quote. I do not intend to comment on the size of the state in Honduras, but the Cardinal was speaking of the world situation and his talk addressed the issue of globalisation. It seems astonishing that anyone should make the claim that the power and influence of the modern state is decreasing. The situation in Europe is completely the reverse, with an ever-growing European superstate that seeks to regulate and control just about every aspect of people's lives and society, and this European superstate is thoroughly socialist. But what is more astonishing is that, given the track record of socialist states, from Hitler's Third Reich and Stalin's Soviet regime, through to the tin-pot imitators of these oppressive states in the Third World, clergymen should see the socialist state as a liberator of the poor and a defender of the oppressed. More than any other form of state power, it has been socialist states that have oppressed the poor and tyrannised their peoples. And it should not be forgotten that the Soviet regime never claimed to have realised the communist ideal of society, but rather a socialist society. The unlearned cardinal stated, according to the Catholic Times report, that, quote, A savage capitalism is returning which history has already judged harshly in view of the conditions to which it subjected the proletariat in the 18th and 19th centuries, end quote. This has increasingly been shown to be a biased and incorrect view of both capitalism and socialism. According to Eugen Rosenstock-Husey, quote, Neither Russian practice nor the later writings of Rosa Luxemburg, the only real successor to Marx, bear out this theory of exploitation, The class war between capital and labour is as true and as untrue as the sex war between man and wife, the age war between old and young, the border war between neighbouring groups. But the whole process is as complicated as the other conflicts mentioned above. In the struggle between the sexes, the man can exploit the woman, and the woman can exploit the man. But there can also exist, after all, a happy marriage. In the class war, 
Capital can exploit labour, but labour can also exploit capital. Or there can be real peace, as there was in England between 1850 and 1882, to the great disappointment of Marx. English workers exploited the world in peaceful cooperation with English capitalists from 1846 to 1914. German workers exploited the capital-owning class, together with the employers, during the inflation of 1918 to 1923. During these years, their workers improved, or at least kept up their standards. The people of means lowered theirs to little more than zero because the inflation did not abolish wages, but capital. The Industrial Revolution did not worsen the conditions of the working classes. It improved them greatly. And socialism did not improve the conditions of the working classes. It created worse conditions and led to their harsher treatments. The implementation of socialist economics in Russia following the revolution led to a decrease in standards of living for the masses. As a result, workers in Soviet Russia did not achieve the standard of living they had enjoyed under Tsarist rule immediately prior to the revolution until the early 1950s. By contrast, the masses who voted with their feet to leave the land in which they were starving and work in the factories during the Industrial Revolution did not do so because they were forced by state decree to do this. This development was the result of progress in a free society. Ludwig von Mises stated the matter clearly, quote, The truth is that economic conditions were highly unsatisfactory on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. The traditional social system was not elastic enough to provide for the needs of the rapidly increasing population. Neither farming nor the gills had any use for the additional hands. Business was imbued with the inherited spirit of privilege and exclusive monopoly. Its institutional foundation were licenses and the grant of a patent of monopoly. Its philosophy was restriction and the prohibition of competition, both domestic and foreign. The number of people for whom there was no room left in the rigid system of paternalism and government tutelage of business grew rapidly. They were virtually outcasts. The apathetic majority of these wretched people lived from the crumbs that fell from the tables of the established castes. In the harvest season, they earned a trifle by occasional help on farms. For the rest, they depended upon private charity and communal poor relief. Quote, the factories freed the authorities and the ruling landed aristocracy from an embarrassing problem that had grown too large for them. They provided sustenance for the masses of paupers. They emptied the poor houses, the workhouses and the prisons. They converted starving beggars into self-supporting breadwinners. The factory owners did not have the power to compel anybody to take a factory job. They could only hire people who were ready to work for the wages offered to them. Low as these wage rates were, they were nonetheless much more than these paupers could earn in any other field open to them. It is a distortion of the facts to say that the factories carried off the housewives from the nurseries and the kitchens and the children from their play. These women had nothing to cook with and to feed their children. These children were destitute and starving. Their only refuge was the factory. It saved them, in the strict sense of the term, 
from death by starvation. It is deplorable that such conditions existed, but if one wants to blame those responsible, one must not blame the factory owners who, driven by selfishness, of course, and not by, quote, altruism, end quote, did all they could to eradicate the evils. What had caused these evils was the economic order of the pre-capitalistic era, the, quote, good old days, end quote, end quote. Despite von Mises's comment above that the factory owners were driven by selfishness, not altruism, many factory owners did in fact engage in altruistic activities. And it is simply not true, as Rosenthal-Cosey claims, that capitalism contributed nothing to, quote, the reproduction of man, end quote, an argument that takes no account of the dire conditions in which the masses found themselves on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. Denis de Rougemont is similarly mistaken when he claims that, quote, capitalism created nothing. It financed, quote, progress without paying royalties to its authors and to the detriment of its workmen, end quote. As von Mises points out, quote, The history of capitalism in Great Britain, as well as in all other capitalist countries, is a record of an unceasing tendency towards the improvement in the wage earner's standard of living, End quote. Doubtless, this on its own does not constitute the reproduction of man, but it did not appear on its own, and given the historical conditions, neither was the reproduction of man possible without it, except for the privileged elite of society. The Industrial Revolution made possible for the many what was previously possible only for the few. It is a romantic fable to imagine that the pre-industrial economy of Great Britain could provide the necessary social foundations for the reproduction of man, given the conditions prevailing for the masses immediately prior to the Industrial Revolution. The same romanticism of the pre-industrial agrarian economy of England is to be found in Christopher Dawson's essay, quote, The Passing of Industrialism, end quote. According to Dawson, quote, The last age, the Industrial Age, SCP, was an age of exploitation and therefore its duration was limited. It was not simply a case of the exploitation of the weak by the strong, as in the last age of the Roman Republic. It was the exploitation of the world and of its resources by a man. The natural riches lying unused for ages were spent recklessly for the sake of immediate advantage, without thought of the future. It was the case of a pygmy, with the mind and aims of a pygmy, suddenly endowed with the power of a giant. In England, the whole powers of the nation were thrown recklessly into the struggle for exploitation. The welfare of the people, the moral law, were thrown aside in order that the newly discovered riches could be made profitable, that the iron and coal and cotton could be put in the world market and the riches of the exploiters increased. Thus, there was not only no spiritual purpose in the process, there was not even a worthy human end. On the immense suffering and labour of the people was built up the hideous edifice of Victorian industrial society. End quote. Dawson went on to predict that post-World War I society would return to an agrarian economy, but this analysis fails to take account not only of the real nature of the situation prevailing on the land prior to the industrialization of the economy and the effects of the latter 
and the standard of living of the labouring masses, but also the very nature of the capitalist economic process itself. Dawson speaks as if the results of capitalism benefited only the few, entrepreneurs and industrialists at the expense of the many, workers. This is, of course, the Marxist-Communist perspective, but it is also a common attitude found among Roman Catholic intellectuals. But this kind of zero-sum characterization of the capitalist process is a misconception founded on economic ignorance. Capitalist entrepreneurs cannot make their profits unless the relative standard of living of society as a whole is increased by their activities. The growth of the industrial economies since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the general social and economic amelioration of all classes in society that has accompanied it stand testimony against this misconception. The lot of the labouring masses in England during the Industrial Revolution contrasted starkly with the treatment meted out to the peasants and working classes in Soviet Russia and other socialist states. In 1958, the German economist Wilhelm Röpke made the following comments on the contrast between the British Industrial Revolution and the implementation of enforced communist industrialization in Russia. Quote, what is the misery of early British capitalism in comparison with the immense sacrifices of the Soviet experiment? The British had to wait a little while for the increase in mass prosperity and an improvement in labour conditions. But what is this in comparison with the long and still continuing sufferings of the masses in the communist state? Nor should we forget that Moscow's autarctic and collectivist method made the solution of another development problem much harder, namely the problem of feeding the growing industrial and urban population. In England and in the other Western countries, development was accompanied by a steady and considerable increase in agricultural yields, and at the same time, the free world economy enabled the produce of the vast new cultivated areas of the new world to be used for feeding the industrial countries. But, in Soviet Russia, communist economic methods led to a decline in agriculture, which even now does not seem to have been made good, if we are to judge by Russian statistics and the observations of Moscow's rulers. End quote. Everything that makes modern life in the West superior on the material level to the drudgery of poverty that countless masses have had to endure throughout history is a result of the economic organisation of society on the capitalist model operating in a free society underpinned by a Christian worldview. This was the context in which economic progress changed the fate of the people of Britain and the other Western nations. Modris Eckstein's writing about England in the Victorian era, said that, quote, Perhaps the most important influence in the development of a vision of social order based on commonly accepted values, was the growth of Protestantism and of Bible reading, especially in the wake of the Great Revival in the early 19th century. By the end of that century, a shared vision of social order was widely in place. This vision and its accompanying values were not imposed through social imperialism, but grew out of the religious environment, and where this did not suffice, 
out of improved economic and social conditions. It is generally accepted that, by the end of the Victorian era, most of the British population no longer had to struggle simply to subsist. A measure of comfort, however small, had been achieved in most cases. Consumption of meat instead of bread, of milk and eggs instead of just potatoes, was rising. In recent years, before the turn of the century, there had been a steady rise in real wages, a decline in family size, a drop in the consumption of alcohol, and the beginnings of social welfare provisions. Archdeacon Wilson, headmaster of Clifton College, remarked in a speech to the Working Men's Club of St. Agnes in 1893, quote, Possibly a future historian writing the history of the English people in this period will think much less of the legislative and even of the commercial and scientific progress of the period than of the remarkable social movement by which there has been an effort made by a thousand agencies to bring about unity of feeling between different classes and to wage war against conditions of life which earlier generations seem to have tolerated. End quote. End quote. The real social problem caused by the Industrial Revolution was not economic exploitation of the quote, proletariat, to use the Cardinal's Marxist terminology, by capitalists, but rather the loss of meaning to work and the dislocation of the natural and social rhythms of man's life as a consequence of the mechanization of production. According to Jacques Ellul, the growth of the technical civilization that began with the Industrial Revolution, quote, disassociates the sociological forms, destroys the moral framework, desacralizes men and things, explodes social and religious taboos, and reduces the body social to a collection of individuals. End quote. Nevertheless, the Industrial Revolution produced real progress over the long term for the masses, both economically and in terms of general social amelioration. But the solution to the loss of meaning to work and the dislocation of the natural and social rhythms of life caused by the mechanization of production could not be solved by Marxism, which failed to understand man's true condition and therefore prescribed the wrong remedy. The masses who provided the labour necessary for large-scale industrialization could not and did not want to go back to the land on which they had previously starved. According to Elul, speaking of England, not France, quote, The new agricultural techniques were plainly so superior that it was not possible to preserve the old, quote, open field system, the commons, the pastures and the forests. Thus, the final blow was dealt to the old, organic peasant society. The peasant could not survive as such, and with him, the whole of society entered into a state of flux. The plasticity we refer to came about in England as a result of this evolution in the use of land, which furnished the technical movement with the necessary manpower, apathetic, vacant, uprooted, end quote. The problems posed by the mechanization of the economy were unavoidable if society was to experience economic and social progress. Marxism did not solve these problems of industrialization for society. It made them incalculably worse. Only where capitalism was able to flourish have these problems been overcome on the material level to any degree. 
the alternative to this painful process, is not a better life for all on the land, but rather the economic and social stagnation of modern Africa. Capitalism, that is, the free market economic order, has been the most effective and successful means of achieving relative economic equality in society, though not absolute economic equality, which exists only at the level of abject poverty, for example, subsistence living. Socialism, left to its logical conclusions, is, as history has shown, the most effective and successful means of achieving economic equality at the level of poverty, at least for the majority of people in society, the proletariat. Although it has been noted that, at least in the developed world, socialism is seldom left to run its course to the bitter end and black markets, that is, illegal free markets, which were encouraged by the authorities in some Soviet states, usually appear, enabling the economy to survive above the level of abject poverty. Socialism is able to achieve economic equality only at the level of poverty. In socialist societies, the benefits of a higher standard of living are, for the most part, enjoyed by a relative few who operate or cooperate with the political system. Far from being a distinctive characteristic of capitalist societies, exploitation of the masses by the privileged managerial classes is rather a characteristic feature of socialist societies. This was the case in Soviet Russia. According to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, writing in the late 1960s, and quoting Andrei Shakarov, quote, there is, quote, great material inequality between town and country, end quote, quote, 40% of our country's population finds itself in a very difficult economic situation, end quote. The context hints at, demands, the word poverty, but when one's own country is in question, it sticks in the throat. Whereas the 5% in the, quote, boss class, end quote, are as highly privileged as, quote, the corresponding groups in the USA, end quote, quote, no, more so, end quote, we feel like retorting, but the author forestalls us with his explanations. The privileges of our country's managerial group are secret, not open and above board. It is a matter of purchasing loyal service to the existing system by bribes, previously in the form of, quote, salaries in envelopes, end quote, now by, quote, closed distribution of everything in short supply, foodstuffs, goods and services, and privileged access to resorts, end quote, end quote. The exploitation of the masses by the ruling class is common in socialist societies, ancient and modern. Despite the claims of socialist propaganda, the inevitable effect of socialism is to share out the poverty, not the wealth. Except at this level of poverty, capitalist economies, that is, free market economies, achieve much greater levels of economic equality than socialist economies achieve. Socialism has conspicuously failed at the very point of its proudest boast. Its promise of economic equality and the eradication of poverty. As Igor Shafarovich pointed out in 1975, quote, The main achievements in social justice of the last century in the West, the reduction of the working day, social insurance, an extraordinary rise in the living standard of the workers, were accomplished 
with very little participation on the part of socialist movements. End quote. Capitalist societies are not only invariably wealthier societies in absolute terms, they also produce much greater levels of economic equality within society. In third world socialist societies, economic inequality is far greater than in first world societies. Furthermore, it is a mistake to characterize third world societies merely as societies that are poor in economic terms. In most third world societies, extreme poverty and extreme wealth exist in the closest proximity. It is this juxtaposition of extreme wealth with extreme poverty that characterizes third world economies and contrasts so sharply with first world economies. If the third world is to experience a greater degree of absolute wealth and relative economic equality, the only way that this can be achieved is through free market capitalism, which has proved its ability to raise standards of living for everyone in society and to narrow the gap between the rich and the poor that is so evident in the socialist states of the third world. But of course, this kind of capitalist economy was only made possible in the West in the context of the Christian, and specifically the Protestant, culture that dominated Western society after the Reformation. Without a Christian worldview underpinning the economy, society may experience economic piracy masquerading as free markets, something that we are now seeing increasingly in the post-Christian West, but not the kind of growth and social amelioration for the population as a whole that has characterised modern Western economies over the past two centuries. Section 2. Socialism and Revolution Yet, despite these facts, Christians have become obsessed with socialism, and judging from the report in the Catholic Times, the Cardinal seemed quite oblivious of socialism's ugly and ungodly beginnings. The report stated that Cardinal Rodriguez, quote, went on to call the concept of globalization a myth that masked the exploitation of the poor, and added that only a new solidarity based on the ideals of liberty, equality and fraternity could save the world from ruin, end quote. Well, this kind of rhetoric has been heard many times before. It is the rhetoric of the French Revolution. E. L. Hebden Taylor made the following comments on the religious idolatry underpinning this rhetoric and the inevitable implication of its implementation, quote, By accepting this romantic teaching, end quote, that is, that the root of man's problems is not sin, but rather his social conditions, and that therefore the solution to his problems lies not in his redemption from sin, but in science and the establishment of a utopian state that will create the necessary social conditions for man to overcome all evil. Quote, Western humanists, both the liberal and conservative, have not only suppressed their own sense of sin, but they have also set idolatrous objectives for their politics, quote, freedom, quote, equality, and, quote, brotherhood, are essentially religious ideals. To set political machinery at work to realize them is to make failure certain. And the more wholeheartedly a government devotes itself to their pursuit, the more likely it is to achieve their opposites. By what laws can men be constrained to love one another? What political compulsion 
will make us lay aside self-interest and suspicion and treat one another as equals. A state with such religious objectives is a totalitarian state. End quote. Predictably, there was no mention in the report of the Cardinals commenting on Robespierre's reign of terror and Marx's call for it to be repeated, nor of the many actual repeats of the terror that have followed revolutions based on these lofty ideals, both in Europe and the Third World. What's sauce for the goose is certainly not sauce for the gander in the Cardinal's book. But, there again, capitalism was never that popular among Roman Catholic theologians and intellectuals, and economic progress for society as a whole was not a feature of societies dominated by the Roman Catholic social ethos. The economic progress experienced by Protestant nations following the Reformation typically lagged behind in Roman Catholic countries, where the Roman Catholic religion ensured that the masses were kept in their place by superstition and ignorance. It is truly ironic, therefore, that Roman Catholics who are eager to be seen as champions and advocates of the poverty-stricken masses in the Third World should bewail and point the finger so much at capitalism, a form of economic organisation of society that was, in its origin, if not now, part of a Christian worldview, namely Protestantism, that liberated the masses from the superstition and ignorance that had oppressed them for so long and gave them material progress and wealth hitherto undreamed of. The reason for this inconsistency, however, is not hard to discern. Liberation from the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church was an essential precursor to the economic and social progress experienced by the Protestant nations of Northern Europe following the Reformation and later throughout the West generally. This was in contrast to the economic stagnation and backwardness experienced by Roman Catholic nations after the Reformation, despite the great influx of gold and silver into these societies from the New World. The irony does not end here, however. The very values that the Cardinal was reporting as championing, quote, liberty, equality, fraternity, end quote, were the shibboleth of a revolution that erupted largely as a violent reaction against that very oppression of the masses in which the Roman Catholic Church was so complicit. The Roman Catholic Church persecuted and murdered the Huguenot, that is, Protestant Church in France, and yet it was Protestantism that gave Britain a religious and ethical value system that enabled it to avoid a revolution of the kind that occurred in France. Had the Huguenots survived and flourished in France, as Protestantism did in Britain, it is questionable whether there would have been a French Revolution of the type that actually did occur. It seems rather hypocritical for Roman Catholics to turn round now and accuse the capitalist form of economic organisation of being oppressive, especially in view of the fact that capitalism has been the source of virtually all the economic progress that has enabled modern societies to improve the material and social conditions of the masses, thereby alleviating oppressive poverty. The French Revolution was a reaction against a system of Roman Catholic medievalism that had passed its sell-by date 250 years previously, but which had been used to oppress the masses, who were denied not only the economic progress experienced in the Protestant nations, largely as a result of the Reformation, 
but also the spiritual and ethical guidance, that is, a Protestant worldview, necessary to control the burgeoning economic aspirations of society in a humane way. The result was the ungodly social explosion we call the French Revolution, the principles of which have remained with us to this day and continue to cause untold suffering for people the world over. Even Groen van Prinstner, who argued that the blame for the revolution could not be laid at the door of the Ancien Régime, but that it was the inevitable consequence of the advancing tide of unbelief, nevertheless acknowledged the deleterious role played by the Roman Catholic Church in preparing the ground for revolutionary ideas. Speaking of the Reformation, he says, quote, This beneficial impact of the Reformation, SCP, came to an end as the evangelical spirit began to decline. The salt of the gospel was cast out by the Catholics and lost its savour with the Protestants. The general corruption that followed paved the way for revolutionary unbelief. Consider France, the country where the strength of the revolution had been overwhelming. Here, too, the Reformation had a positive influence on the Roman Church. Unfortunately, dragonades came to be preferred to arguments, and Protestants were either chased across the border or else silenced. Still, there remained the Jansenists, loyal Catholics who defended free grace. Their influence, however, was suppressed, a second triumph over the Reformation that debilitated the French Church. In the course of time, the Jesuits came to be hated. Only politics remained as a legitimate topic of public debate. Morals continued to decline in the absence of admonition and example, and learning turned to unbelief once it lacked the pious contrapoise in Port Royal. Only the outward form of religion survived, supported nonetheless from political calculation by compulsion and persecution. A church of this kind proved powerless against the rising tide of unbelief. Likewise, in Spain, Italy and the Roman Catholic part of Germany, the Protestants were either expelled or suppressed. In England, a Romanizing tendency was co-responsible for civil war under Charles I, was heavily patronized under Charles II, and was finally resisted by the Anglican clergy less from religious zeal than from fear of losing power. On so poisonous a soil there arose the wretched harvest of deist writings that have contributed so much to the spread of unbelief. End quote. The consequences of this revolutionary tide of unbelief, which has now swept through the whole world, were summed up by Abraham Kuyper in terms that are all too familiar to our own generation. Quote, the revolution in Paris proved to be not just a change in regime, but a change of system, of political organization, of general human theory. In the place of worship of the Most High God came, courtesy of humanism, the worship of man. Human destiny was shifted from heaven to earth. The scriptures were unraveled and the word of God shamefully repudiated in order to pay homage to the majesty of reason. The institution of the church was twisted into an instrument for undermining the faith and later for destroying it. The public school had to wean the rising generation away from the piety of our fathers. Universities have been refashioned into institutions at which Darwinism violates the spiritual nobility of humanity 
by denying its creation in the image of God. Hedonism has replaced heaven-mindedness, and emancipation become the watchword by which people tampered with the bond of marriage, with the respect children owe to their parents, with the moral seriousness of our national manners. This went on until first philosophy, then socialism raised its voice. The former replaced certainty in our hearts with doubt. The latter, logically developing upper-class liberal theory, applied to the money and goods of the owners what the liberal already had the audacity to do against God and his anointed king. Section 3. Socialism and Slavery In the same year that the Catholic Times reported Rodriguez's ill-informed views on the nature and history of capitalism, the British publisher Continuum reissued a book on ethics by someone described as an, quote, outstanding Catholic intellectual, end quote. The blurb on the back of the book stated that the author, quote, took Christianity to be deeply subversive of capitalism since it, that is Christianity, declares as possible the, to us, improbable prospect that people might live together without war or domination or antagonism, but by unity and love, end quote. The author comments on the Eighth Commandment, quote, You shall not steal, certainly the most misunderstood of all the commandments. It has nothing to do with property and its so-called rights. What it refers to is stealing men, taking away their freedom to enslave them. It is a curious irony that in the name of this commandment we have built up a whole theory of the sacredness of possessions, of objects, a theory that has led to the wholesale enslavement of men, the very thing the commandment in fact denounces. End quote. This is truly astonishing. One wonders whether this quote, outstanding Catholic intellectual end quote, ever read a word of 20th century history. Was it the ideology of capitalism that enslaved and slaughtered millions in the concentration camps of Hitler and Stalin? When and where has capitalism led to the wholesale enslavement of men? And since when has socialism ever accomplished the prospect of men living together without war and domination? Socialism was responsible for the worst atrocities of the 20th century. Millions died in Hitler's and Stalin's pogroms and persecutions, and the record of their disciples in the Third World is equally bad. Least of all do socialists have any right to speak of their beliefs ending war and oppression. Socialism, whether it has been the National Socialism of Hitler, the International Socialism of Stalin, or the Cultural Revolution of Mao Zedong, has been responsible for the worst wars and campaigns of oppression, enslavement, and mass murder that the world has ever seen. Igor Shafarovich, an internationally renowned mathematician and Russian dissident under the Soviet regime, argued that inequality and slavery are at the heart of the socialist ideal, and not merely the unforeseen consequences of its imperfect practical outworking, despite socialism's appeal to equality and freedom. Quote, Proceeding from a critique of a given society, accusing it of injustice, inequality and lack of freedom, socialism proclaims, in the systems where it is expressed with the greatest consistency, a far greater injustice, inequality 
and slavery. End quote. Yet, here we are again, with so-called Christians and clergymen promoting socialism as a Christian ideal. These, quote, outstanding intellectuals, end quote, seem to be living on a different planet from the rest of mankind. The ideology behind Hitler's Third Reich and Stalin's Soviet Russia was not capitalism, it was socialism, which mass-murdering political regimes of the 20th century, or any other century for that matter, were motivated by the ideology of capitalism. The Christian concept of intellectual honesty and integrity, indeed, the very concept of truth, seems to be entirely foreign to the prophets of socialism, quote, Christian or otherwise, and we should not expect anything else. Truth has always been the first victim of socialist propaganda and socialist politics. Socialist utopias have always been pursued by means of lies, deceit, persecution, oppression, enslavement of the people and mass murder. Are we to expect anything else from people who believe that God's law can be set aside so easily? If the Eighth Commandment can be set aside so easily by socialists, it should not surprise us that the others, including the Sixth Commandment, quote, Thou shalt not kill, end quote, can be cast aside as well. But what are we to make of, quote, Christians who say that the Eighth Commandment refers to slavery and, quote, has nothing to do with property and its so-called rights, end quote? Is slavery really the handmaid of capitalism? Such an argument may make for good rhetoric, but it is difficult to substantiate historically. Was it not the industrialized Western capitalist countries that abolished slavery? And was it not the most advanced industrial, that is, capitalist country, Britain, that first abolished and outlawed slavery? The same kind of anti-capitalist mentality colours Ronald Segal's analysis of the contrast between the Atlantic slave trade and Islamic slavery. While acknowledging that, in fact, Islamic slavery was no more compassionate in its treatment of slaves than the Atlantic slave trade, he still claims that Islamic slavery was, quote, overall more benign, in part because the values and attitudes promoted by religion inhibited the very developments of a Western-style capitalism, with its effective subjugation of people to the priority of profit, end quote. Of course, Segal does not tell us what purpose the Islamic slave trade served if it was not profit, nor does he say what other influences played a part in inhibiting the development of a Western-style capitalism in Islamic countries. He does say that in the Islamic empire of the 9th century, quote, the urban rich bought up large tracts of land for investment or prestige from minor landowners ruined by taxes and debt and evicted the peasants employed on them. Slaves and hired workers from among the landless would have supplied the necessary labour, end quote, and that, quote, slaves were the bottom of the social order, inferior to all who at least had their freedom, end quote. Nevertheless, Segal does not hesitate to claim that the condition of Muslim slaves was more benign than that of slaves in the Western colonies because, at least in part, Islamic religion inhibits the development of Western-style capitalism. Capitalism, apparently, is evil per se, and no one benefits from it 
except the entrepreneurs and the industrialists. Yet the populations of Western nations enjoy higher standards of living and general welfare than those of non-capitalist and anti-capitalist nations, including those of the fabulously wealthy modern Islamic oil states. The blindingly obvious facts of economic life for the great mass of mankind, both in the modern world and throughout history, demonstrate the superiority of the capitalist economic system, which produces greater economic and social benefits for all in society, compared with other forms of economic organisation, which tend to share out the poverty for the vast majority, whilst allocating greater wealth to a relatively few rich exploiters. Despite these facts, capitalism is regularly vilified as the epitome of an evil system of economic exploitation of the poor by the rich. But, if this is so, we must ask why it is that the ordinary people of Western capitalist nations flourish with higher standards of living and welfare and greater levels of economic equality than people in the non- and anti-capitalist societies, which have the poorest most downtrodden and exploited populations in the world. Of course, the influence of Christian values on Western societies accounts for the much greater concern for the poor and downtrodden and the value placed on the individual in these societies. My point is not that capitalism has produced these values, but that Christian values underpinned both the greater respect for human life evident in Western societies and the development of the Western capitalist economic system. The popular anti-capitalist mythologies of socialism bear no relation to the real world. It was the Christian capitalist nations that abandoned and then outlawed slavery, not the Islamic world, where slavery is still practiced, that is, where people are still bought and sold for profit, notwithstanding any supposed benign influence of Islamic religion on this practice. And among Christian nations, it is the Protestant and ex-Protestant nations that have the higher standards of living and welfare compared with Roman Catholic and ex-Roman Catholic countries. It is, of course, widely recognised that it was for religious reasons, that is, the values and attitudes promoted by the Christian religion, that slavery was brought to an end in the Christian capitalist nations of the West. If the influence of religion in Islamic countries was so favourable to slaves in comparison to the harsh treatment meted out to them in Western societies, as Segal argues, we must wonder why it is that this did not lead to the abolition of slavery by Islamic countries. The reality, however, is that it was in the Christian West that slavery was outlawed, Islam still practices slavery. But there are also economic reasons for the rejection of slavery in a capitalist society. Slavery is an economically irrational and ineffective means of producing wealth. Max Weber defined capitalism of the distinctively Western kind as, quote, the rational capitalistic organization of formerly free labor, end quote. According to Weber, quote, only suggestions of this were found outside Western economies. Quote. By comparison, the reintroduction of forced labour, that is slavery, was part and parcel of Marxist communist economic theory and practice. According to Nikolai Bukharin, quote, 
proletarian compulsion in all its forms, from execution by shooting to labour conscription, is, no matter how paradoxical this sounds, a method for the elaboration of communist humanity from the human material of the capitalist epoch. End quote. Although Marxist communist theory acknowledged that under the capitalist economic organization of society, forced labor, slavery, was economically inefficient and unproductive, it maintained that such slavery became necessary and productive in the communist society. Section 4. Socialism and Christianity The obsession with socialism by Christians is not confined to Roman Catholics, however. In the 20th century, Protestants also became enamoured of socialist ideology, at least in Britain and Europe. This can be seen at many levels, both officially and unofficially. For example, a former Anglican Archbishop of Liverpool, David Shepherd, argued in his book Bias to the Poor that justice should be biased to the poor. Yet Scripture specifically forbids those whose office it is to administer public justice from exercising such a bias. Exodus 23.3, Leviticus 19.15. Shepherd acknowledged that such a bias involves more than the biblical injunction that the wealthy in society should help those who are genuinely poor by exercising charity. He says, quote, The call for justice jars on many ears. To those who broadly believe the status quo to be a just one, it seems more wounding than a demand for charity or welfare. But I want to press the points about justice and about more equal opportunities for all to make real choices about their destiny. That will mean the shift of powers and resources. But any shift of resources, that is, redistribution of wealth from one class to another in society, that is not the result of voluntary decisions on the part of those from whom the resources are redistributed, for example, through trade or charity. In other words, any shift of resources that is achieved by force is called theft in the Bible, even when such force is exercised by the state. See Leviticus 25.23, Numbers 36.7 and Ezekiel 46.18 with 1 Kings 21.1-19. Such theft is not excused by the needs of the thief. Proverbs 6.30 and 31, though neither does this fact relieve the wealthy of their responsibility to help the genuine poor. Proverbs 22.9, Luke 14, 13 and 14. Another and rather extreme example of this attitude was the case of the Anglican priest who claimed that shoplifting from large superstores is not theft and that such activity helps to affect a badly needed redistribution of economic resources in society. The Times reported the priest as stating that superstores are, quote, places of evil and temptation, end quote. This was not the first time that a clergyman had decided that the way to deal with temptation is to give in to it, nor will it be the last. But the reasons given by this clergyman for his views on shoplifting were more ideological, involving a religious perspective that is socialist, not Christian. The Bible forbids theft and requires a thief to make restitution to his victim, plus compensation of between a fifth and five times the value of the goods stolen, depending on the nature of the theft. 
Exodus 22, 1, 4, Leviticus 6, 2-5, Numbers 5, 6-8. If socialism is a biblical ideal, what is the Eighth Commandment for? For socialists of all types and in all ages, it is private property that is seen as the cause of human misery and its abolition as the only means of eradicating injustice in society. According to Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, quote, The theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence. Abolition of private property, end quote, Communist Manifesto. Don Léger Marie Deschamps, an 18th century French Benedictine monk and utopian socialist thinker who had an influence on Diderot and Rousseau and is considered in some respects to be a precursor of Hegel, Feuerbach, Engels and Marx, is another good example. But for Deschamps, the very idea of God is, said Igor Shafarovich, a, quote, product of definite social relations based on private property. Religion did not exist before these relations took shape, and it will no longer exist when they are destroyed, end quote. According to Deschamps, however, not only will all landed property come under common ownership in the utopian socialist state of the future, but all women as well. Sexual communism is a common theme in socialist ideology, whether it is the communism of the ancient world, for example Plato's Republic, the medieval heretical sects, or modern Marxist communism. Despite the claims of the kleptomaniac Anglican priest mentioned above, the belief that private property is evil in principle and the real cause of mankind's misfortune and suffering is in stark contrast to the moral teaching of the Bible, which condemns theft, Exodus 20.15. Private property is not only sanctioned by the law of God, its preservation is a fundamental principle of biblical justice, as is the right of private and privileged transfer of wealth to others, for example, inheritance. Though not limited to it, the biblical prohibition on theft applies also to the form of private ownership, most abominated by socialists. Ownership of land. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels called for, quote, the abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes, end quote. According to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, quote, the first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling in the ditch and crying to his fellows, Beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. End quote. The biblical laws on land tenure contradict this immoral socialist principle in the most direct manner. Quote, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbour's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. End quote. Deuteronomy 19.4 Cursed be he that removeth his neighbour's landmark. End quote. And the people were required to accept and abide by this principle. Quote, and all the people shall say, Amen. End quote. 
Deuteronomy 27.17. King Ahab's state-authorized confiscation of Naboth's property, his inheritance, was severely punished by God. 1 Kings 21, quote, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? End quote, complained Jezebel, the queen, verse 7. In other words, quote, As king, do you not have the rights of eminent domain? End quote. That is, sovereignty over all property in the kingdom with the right of expropriation. Scripture condemns this doctrine, which rulers and states from antiquity to modern times have considered so essential, so sacred, and which reveals so clearly their idolatry of political power. The practice of eminent domain is contrary to God's law and therefore immoral and condemned as oppression by Scripture. Quote, Moreover, the prince shall not take of the people's inheritance by oppression to thrust them out of their possession, but he shall give his son's inheritance out of his own possession, that my people be not scattered, every man from his possession. End quote. Ezekiel 46, 18. The cause of man's misery, according to the Bible, is not private property but sin, the transgression of God's law, which requires man to respect and preserve the private property of his neighbour. Of course, it is true that the Bible also teaches that wealth is a gift of God and that we are the stewards of what we own. It is our duty to use the wealth that God has given us stewardship over in a way that conforms to the ethical standard revealed in Scripture. And this includes the showing of mercy and charity to those in need. But this is just the point. God has made me the steward of the resources he has put at my disposal, not someone else, and certainly not the state. For someone else to usurp my responsibility under God to exercise stewardship over the resources God has given me is a crime, not only against me, but against God himself, because it is a transgression of his law and a denial of the social order that he has established for mankind in his word. This is no less the case when it is the state that usurps my God-given responsibility. It is this point that, quote, Christian socialists seem to miss altogether. Their idolatry of state power blinds them to the obvious. God has not granted the state stewardship over society's economic resources. The state has a legitimate but limited social function as a ministry of public justice, and it is authorised by Scripture to collect taxes in order to enable it to fulfil this specific function and this alone, Romans 13.1-6. It is not authorised by Scripture to collect taxes for any other purpose. Furthermore, socialism has always shown itself hostile to Christian values. What socialist government has ever upheld the rights of God, defended institutions like the Christian family, preserved Christian ethics in medicine and sexuality, passed legislation that enables a man to leave an inheritance to his children, Proverbs 13.22, rather than confiscating his children's inheritance. Socialist governments have been inimical to all these values from the beginning. Least of all do socialist governments uphold righteousness. Socialism is an engine of social revolution that seeks to overturn everything that Christianity stands for. True, many socialist politicians claim to be Christian, 
But the Lord Jesus Christ taught us that it is by the fruit that they bear, that is, by their works, that we shall recognize his disciples, not by their profession. Matthew 7.16 Politicians who proclaim themselves Christians, yet who stand against Christian values and deny the ethics of God's law, should not be accepted as believers. Rather, they should be seen for what they are, social revolutionaries who are in rebellion against God and his kingdom. Section 5. Capitalism and Christianity Of course, it would be absurd to argue that free market capitalism is the answer to man's problems, that poverty itself can be eradicated completely by adopting the capitalist form of economic organisation. The complete eradication of poverty is an impossible goal to achieve, and even Jesus recognised this fact. Matthew 25.11, Mark 14.7 The reason for this is that ultimately, poverty has a spiritual cause. It is part of the curse for sin under which mankind labours, though this does not necessarily mean that poverty in individual cases is a result of specific sins committed by the individuals involved. Compare John 9, 1-3. Under these conditions, it is unrealistic and moreover idolatrous to expect the capitalist form of economic organisation to eradicate poverty completely. Such an expectation implies that capitalism is a means of social salvation. But this does not mean that society should not adopt the capitalist form of economic organisation, merely that its adoption, per se, would not solve all the problems of poverty. The fact that capitalism does not solve all the problems of poverty does not mean that capitalism is, quote, savage, any more than the fact that socialism has not solved the problem of poverty means that socialism is savage, although, of course, socialism is savage as a history of virtually all socialist states has demonstrated, and is morally unacceptable for this and other reasons. The issue of poverty is much more complex than that. However, it must be recognised that where capitalism has been underpinned by a Christian worldview and ethic in society, far greater progress practically towards the eradication of poverty has been achieved than under any other system of economic organisation. And, as already mentioned, this is the case both in absolute terms and relatively. That is, capitalism, when underpinned by a Christian worldview and ethic, not only tends to raise the lowest classes out of absolute poverty, but also produces much greater levels of economic equality within society than any other form of economic organisation. This is no accident. Ultimately, capitalism only works properly when it is underpinned by a Christian moral ethic and worldview. The capitalist method of production can be imitated for sure, but eventually, without a Christian foundation, the distinctive kind of rational economic activity that led to economic growth and greater wealth for all in first world societies, which is what the term capitalism usually describes historically, will eventually deteriorate into the kind of economic activity that Max Weber described as, quote, predominantly of an irrational and speculative character or directed to acquisition by force, above all acquisition of booty, whether directly in war 
or in the form of continuous fiscal booty by exploitation of subjects. End quote. A description of that, unfortunately, increasingly rings true for much of the economy of modern Britain as a consequence of the abandonment of Christian ethics, both by the private sector and government. Nevertheless, it was only in the religious context of a Christian, and in particular a Protestant society, that modern capitalism first developed. It should not come as a surprise to learn, therefore, that globally, capitalist societies are much wealthier, both in absolute terms and per capita, produce much greater levels of economic equality, have much greater individual freedom, and are more likely to have representative governments than socialist societies. Nevertheless, we must insist that the free market is not a theory of everything, and that to treat it as such is to reduce the whole of life to the economic aspect, to seek the meaning of life in the created order itself, and therefore a form of idolatry. And this is the problem with the godless libertarianism that has flourished in recent years, and to which the term capitalism has been quite misleadingly applied. But the choice is not between capitalism as a theory of everything and capitalism as a source of man's problems. Capitalism relates to one aspect of life, the economic, and therefore finds its proper function and purpose alongside other forms of human activity, all of which find their ultimate meaning in God's creative purpose for mankind. Free market capitalism, therefore, is a valid and correct way of organising society economically, but it can only function properly when due consideration is given to the other functions of man's life and when it is not used to define human life in its totality. Historically, modern capitalism arose in societies where economics was not the defining feature of life, where the economy was only one aspect of human activity, and where a Christian worldview provided ultimate meaning and purpose for society as a whole. If free market economics has been divorced from this social context in the modern world, thereby distorting the true meaning of man's life, this does not mean that the capitalist form of economic organisation is evil per se. It means merely that sinful men have abused and idolised it. We must resist all such idolatry, but we must not throw out the baby with the bathwater. The capitalist organisation of economic activity is the correct approach to one aspect of human life, and therefore part of the answer to man's needs. But it can only function effectively and properly as a part of the whole that God intends human society to be when it finds its context in relation to the other functions of human life as God has ordered it by his word. Capitalism, therefore, is not in principle evil, even if it can be perverted for evil ends by sinful men, as is often the case. Socialism as Religion Socialism, by contrast, is evil in principle because it is predicated on the rejection of God's order for man's life, even if it is adopted as an ideal by men with good intentions. It is really a religion, not merely a form of economic organisation because it functions as an all-embracing worldview. Speaking of the revolutionary attitude, Christopher Dawson said that the desire for, quote, 
the complete remodeling of society according to some ideal of social perfection, belongs to the order of religion, it finds its only parallel in the past in movements of the most extreme religious type, like that of the Anabaptists in 16th century Germany and the Levellers and Fifth Monarchy Men of Puritan England. And when we study the lives of the founders of modern socialism, the great anarchists and even some of the apostles of nationalist liberalism like Mazzini, we feel at once that we are in the presence of religious leaders, whether prophets or heresiarchs, saints or fanatics. Behind the hard rational surface of Karl Marx's materialist and socialist interpretation of history, there burns the flame of an apocalyptic vision. For what was the social revolution in which he put his hope but a 19th century version of the Day of the Lord, in which the rich and the powerful of the earth should be consumed and the princes of the Gentiles brought low and the poor and disinherited should reign in a regenerated universe? So, too, Marx, in spite of his professed atheism, looked for the realisation of this hope, not like Saint-Simon and his fellow idealist socialists, to the conversion of the individual and to human efforts towards the attainment of a new social ideal, but to the, quote, arm of the Lord, end quote, the necessary, ineluctable working out of the eternal law which human will and human effort are alike powerless to change or stay. But the religious impulse behind these social movements is not a constructive one. It is as absolute in its demands as that of the old religions, and it admits of no compromise with reality, end quote. According to Sergei Bulgakov, quote, Socialism nowadays emerges not only as a natural area of social policy, but usually also as a religion, one based on atheism and the deification of man and man's labour, and on recognition of the elemental forces of nature and social life, and as the only meaningful principle in history, end quote. Socialism reduces life to the economic aspect. It is, said Semyon Frank, the, quote, religion of service to material interests, end quote, and therefore idolatrous in principle, end quote. Section 7. Socialism, Mammon and Patronage An inevitable consequence of socialist logic is a belief that mammon is the answer to man's problems. This fact can be seen in the way socialist governments seek to solve virtually every kind of social problem. If only more money were available, if only there were more economic equality, we could solve all our problems. But money does not solve man's problems. There are more funds available to the state now than at any other period of our history, due to the success ironically, of capitalist enterprise. And we now have more economic equality than at any other time in our history, due again to the success of capitalistic enterprise. But this has not solved our problems. Socialism has palpably failed to deliver the goods and benefits for mankind that it has promised. Indeed, it has failed even to deliver the narrow economic benefits it promised to the masses. On the material level, the extent to which modern Western society has these economic advantages is due entirely to the success of capitalism, not socialism. Furthermore, the cultural progress experienced by the Western nations since the Reformation has not been the fruit of socialism, but rather 
the fruit of a Christian way of life, in which individuals have been free to use their wealth in accordance with their own consciences. It has been well said that, quote, Were it not for the right of man to do what he liked with his property, little would exist in religion, art, science, social and medical work today, end quote. It was the work of the church, Christian charities, private donations and endowments, and voluntary giving motivated by Christian conscience that created the educational and medical services that so revolutionised the life of the ordinary people in modern Western society. The state did not create these institutions. It merely hijacked them once they had been created by the Christian society of previous centuries. And once it had been taken over, the secular state systematically set about stripping these institutions of the Christian values and ideals that brought them into being in the first place. For example, under the control of the British secular state's National Health Service, hospitals, originally created for the saving of life, have been turned into death factories by the practice of abortion, and the grim reality of modern medical practice under the guidance of secular ideals seems likely to get only worse as a result of the constant attempts of politicians to legalise euthanasia. Requiring the state to fulfil our responsibilities for us has not solved society's problems. Far from solving our problems, the socialist state has exacerbated them. For example, the modern state, which seeks to control so much of our lives, is one of the worst vandals that history has known. It squanders vast millions of taxpayers' money on useless and destructive projects that contribute nothing to the betterment of human society and culture quite apart from the millions spent on unnecessary wars. Nor is this the case only with the tin-pot socialist dictatorships that seem to be endemic in the third world, and that seem only to reduce their societies to even greater poverty in what seems to be their mission to spread human misery as widely as possible. Western states are equally guilty of waste and vandalism at all levels, whether it is funding the above-mentioned dictatorships spending millions of taxpayers' money on computer systems that do not work, or giving grants to students to enable them to engage in idiotic performance art. I am thinking here, for example, of an arts grant given to some students in the United Kingdom a number of years ago for a performance art project in which two hard hats were yoked together on the top by a short plank of wood. The performance of the art for which the arts grant was awarded consisted of two students walking around the streets of the city, wearing these two hard hats yoked together with a plank of wood. A local television news programme carried the story. Similar examples of idiotic activities and installations masquerading as art and regularly sponsored by the state with taxpayers' money could be multiplied. Well, of course, art is a necessary element of human life. In the most desperate of conditions, men have shown themselves to be artists, Art is vital to culture. Of this, there is no doubt. Of course, mankind is created in God's image, and therefore creativity is at the heart of what it means to be human. But, does the taxpayer really have to foot the bill for this kind of thing? Where art is not funded by the state, this is unlikely to happen. Stupidity is not an art form where people are allowed to retain responsibility for the stewardship of the resources that God has given them, 
they can choose not to subsidise stupidity and they can subsidise excellence instead. The socialist state, ever ready to regulate society in accordance with the wishes of those lobbying groups that can gain the ear of politicians and promise votes at elections, has been a poor and wasteful sponsor of the arts and consequently has engaged in cultural as well as economic and military vandalism. The modern state is anything but responsible in its attitude to taxpayers' money. Its record as a steward of society's resources is one of the worst. The Bible gives stewardship of the economic resources of society to the family and to the individual, not to the state. To insist that the state should usurp the role of the family and abridge the liberty of the individual by calling for the socialist organisation of society is rebellion against God. It is, of course, our duty as individuals, as families, as communities, and particularly as the Christian community of faith, the Church, to help the needy and to care for the genuinely poor. But it is not the duty of the state to usurp our responsibility to do this by providing welfare that is funded by taxation, which confiscates the very funds necessary for individuals, families and churches to fulfil their God-ordained responsibility to care for the needy and help the poor. The state has no authority, no mandate in God's word, to take these responsibilities away from us. When it does so, it distorts the humane social order that God has ordained for society and scripture and creates in its place a dysfunctional society. This is because, under such circumstances, the other institutions responsible for these things, family and church, are not able to function according to their divinely ordained rules, and neither does the state itself function according to its divinely ordained rule in such circumstances. As a result, Justice itself, which is the proper function of the state to uphold, is compromised. Neither does the usurpation of the roles of these other institutions by the state create a caring society, as socialist propaganda would have us believe. Rather, it creates an uncaring society, a society in which individuals, families and communities, and alas even the church, abdicate their responsibilities to the anonymous state. The state is then expected to shoulder all of man's social responsibilities, a role for which it was never intended, and that it is not competent to fulfil. The consequence of the state's attempts to fulfil this expectation is the near total control and regulation of life by the state, that is, totalitarianism, the abolition of freedom. And this is the moral that naive socialists have never understood. Quote, Christian, no less than atheist. If men will not shoulder their responsibilities, they will inevitably lose their freedom. This is a lesson that has been demonstrated time and again in those countries that have embraced socialism. It will be no different in the United Kingdom, since our freedom has already been abolished in principle and replaced by the fraudulent secular humanist ideal known as human rights. Furthermore, there are insufficient funds available to enable the state to fulfil the role that socialists conceive for it. How is this problem to be solved? The answer of just about every socialist I have ever known is that his neighbour does not pay enough taxes and should be taxed more. 
but not our socialist comrade. Of course, he pays his fair share already, if not too much. It would be unreasonable to expect him to pay more taxes. Quote, Christian socialists should here take note of the biblical commandment to love one's neighbour as oneself. I have yet to see a wealthy socialist calling for more taxes, and there are plenty of them doing this, particularly in the world of entertainment and the media, who is willing to donate some of his wealth to the state, which is not the same thing as donating it to charity, and socialism requires the state to provide for man's welfare, not charity, which is often treated with contempt by socialists. In the perspective of the socialist, you see, private property is wrong, except for the private property in his pocket. Socialism is the politics of envy, and as even the unlearned, tipped-to-be Pope Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez should have known, envy is sin. As another religion, an alternative to Christianity, which is what it is, and therefore an idolatrous philosophy of life, socialism rejects God's law in principle. It is no wonder, then, that the fruit produced by the tree of socialism in the 20th century was so inimical to Christian values at all levels, for example, health care, witness abortion and euthanasia, sexual ethics, witness the permissive society and homosexual liberation, education, witness indoctrination of the religion of secular humanism in the state education system, and the abolition of Clause 28, law, witness the overturning of justice due to the victims of crime and the indulgence with which criminals are treated, economics, witness legalised theft on a grand scale by the state and state-licensed institutions, the family, witness the welfare state in combination with permissive legislation on divorce, which has virtually destroyed the Christian ideal of family life. Where, and in what principles, policies and practices does socialism conform to Christian ideals? Nowhere. Quote, In no socialist doctrine, said Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Quote, Our moral demands seen as the essence of socialism. There is merely a promise that morality will fall like manna from heaven after the socialization of property. Accordingly, nowhere on earth have we been shown ethical socialism in being. Section 1. Marxist Communism and Socialism The social and political regime realized in Soviet Russia was not communism, but rather socialism, and this fact was acknowledged by the Soviet regime itself. In an interview with Joseph Stalin on the 1st of March 1936, Roy Howard, president of Scripps Howard Newspapers, put it to Stalin that, quote, Admittedly, communism has not been achieved in Russia, end quote. In his answer, Stalin said to Howard, quote, our Soviet society is socialist society because the private ownership of the factories, works, the land, the banks and the transport system has been abolished and public ownership put in its place. The social organisation which we have created may be called a Soviet socialist organisation, not entirely completed, but fundamentally a socialist organisation of society. The foundation of this society is public property, state, that is, national, and also cooperative, collective farm property. Yes, you are right. We have not yet built communist society, 
it is not so easy to build such a society. You are probably aware of the difference between socialist society and communist society. In socialist society, certain inequalities in property still exist. End quote. In Marxist communist ideology, socialism is a temporary phenomenon, a stage in society's transition from capitalism to socialism. Socialism requires a strong centralized state since the realization of communist ideals necessitates the oppressive enforcement of a radical program of social engineering. This is because the kind of society envisioned by communist ideology involves the overturning of the God-ordained and therefore the natural order of society, which is a family-based order that requires and encourages personal freedom and responsibility, ideals that inevitably lead to social inequalities and that are therefore inimical to communist ideology. But the ideology of Marxist communism requires the eventual abolition or, quote, withering away, end quote, of the state. Only when the state has withered away and ceased to exist is society considered to have achieved a state of communism in Marxist ideology. According to Frederick Engels, quote, As soon as there is no longer any social class to be kept in suppression, and as soon as class domination and the struggle for individual existence based on the hitherto existing anarchy of production, that is capitalism, SCP, are removed, along with the conflicts and excesses which arise from them, then there will be nothing more to repress and nothing that would make necessary a special repressive power, a state. The first act in which the state really appears as representative of the whole society, the taking possession of the means of production in the name of society, is simultaneously its last independent act as a state. The intervention of state power in social affairs becomes superfluous in one field after another until, at last, it falls asleep of its own accord. End quote. Likewise, Lenin stated that, quote, the proletariat needs only a state which is withering away, that is, a state so constituted that it begins to wither away immediately and cannot but wither away. End quote. Prior to the realization of this golden age of communism, however, society must, according to Marxist ideology, experience a period of political transition in which the state can be nothing other than the quote, revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. End quote. This is the socialist state. In fact, however, the period of the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat, socialism, has turned out historically to be a permanent revolution of the most oppressive kind, in which the state, far from withering away, achieves a condition of virtually apotheosis. Indeed, Hegel, upon whose philosophy of history the ideology of Marxism is built, refers to the state, following Kant, as irdisch gottliches, that is, quote, earthly godly, end quote, Section 2. Marxism and Sexual Communism The eradication of marriage and the abolition of family life based upon it in favour of, quote, free love, end quote, that is, sexual communism, as well as economic and political communism, has also been 
one of the goals of Marxist communism. According to Denis de Rougemont, quote, Revolutionary Russia was the scene of a youthful outburst of sex, which it is tempting to regard as unprecedented in European annals. As for marriage, theoretically it was swept away during the early stages of the Soviets. Nihilist or romantic intellectuals had inspired the young Bolshevist leaders with a doctrine that found expression in unmarried cohabitation, abortion and the desertion of babies. In short, in whatever was imagined to defy reactionary prejudices, mistakenly thought to have been fostered by bourgeois capitalism, end quote. This ideal of free love proved impossible to sustain, even in communist Russia, and its deleterious social consequences were subsequently reversed by Stalin for pragmatic reasons. Quote, Experience taught the government says M.C.D. Darcy, quote, that lawless love endangered the good of society, that there were fundamental laws that could not be infringed without peril, and so new legislation corrected the excessive liberties permitted at first, end quote. Likewise, Denis de Rougemont stated that, quote, Stalin's immediate aim was to rebuild the framework of his nation, for, in the absence of a framework, economic life was in danger of collapse and, quote, national defence, end quote, could not be organised without constant appeal to the passion of the early revolutionaries. And it was precisely this passion that Stalin had determined to get rid of. To lay down new social foundations, and especially that most stable and stabilising of units, the family, became therefore a vital necessity. The nature of the mechanism of productivist dictatorship compelled the so-called socialist state to decree a series of laws against divorce, which was made more burdensome, and against abortion and the deserting of babies born out of wedlock. The sudden severity of these laws, the psychological shock which they inflicted, propaganda and measures enabling the police to keep watch on private life, transformed the moral atmosphere of Russia around the year of 1936. Marriage was instituted again on strictly utilitarian, collectivist and eugenic principles, and there was promoted a spirit in which individual problems tended to lose all their dignity, legitimacy and lawless virulence, end quote. Section 3 Marxist Communism and the Family Marxist communist ideology, like virtually all other forms of communism throughout history, also predicted the abolition, or quote, withering away, end quote, of the family, since the family, like Christianity, constitutes a serious obstacle to the consistent realisation of communist principles. According to the Russian communist diplomat and radical feminist, Alexandra Kolontai, quote, The old form of the family is passing away, and the communist society has no use for it. The bourgeois world celebrated the isolation, the cutting off of the married pair from the collective wheel. In the scattered and disjointed bourgeois society, full of struggle and destruction, the family was the sole anchor of hope in the storm of life, the peaceful haven in the ocean of hostilities and competitors between persons. 
The family represented an individual class in the social unit. There can be no such thing in the communist society, for communist society as a whole represents such a fortress of the collective life, precluding any possibility of the existence of an isolated class of family bodies existing by itself, with its ties of birth, its love of family honor, its absolute segregation. End quote. Likewise, Frederick Engels says that quote, with the transfer of the means of production into common ownership, the individual family ceases to be an economic unit of society. Private housekeeping is transformed into a social industry. The care and education of children became a public affair. Society looks after all children equally, whether they are born in or out of wedlock. End quote. The family is one of the principal opponents of socialism. It stands for everything that is inimical to the realization of a socialist society. If socialism is to be established, therefore, the family must be destroyed. Igor Shafarovich spells out for us just what this will mean. Quote, In socialist society, the family will lose all its social functions, which, from the Marxist point of view, means it will die out. The Communist Manifesto proclaims the disappearance of the, quote, bourgeois family, end quote. But by the 20s, they were already managing without this epithet. Professor S.Y. Wolfson, in his lengthy work, The Sociology of Marriage in the Family, 1929, foresaw that the family would lose the following characteristics. Its productive function, which it was already losing under capitalism, its joint household, people would take their meals communally, its child-rearing function, they would be reared in state nurseries and kindergartens, its role in the care of the aged, and the cohabitation of parents with children and of married couples. Quote, the family will be purged of its social content. It will wither away. End quote, end quote. Most of these predictions are, in varying degrees, now well-advanced realities for a great many families in the United Kingdom as a result of the implementation by successive governments over the second half of the 20th century of social engineering policies inspired by socialist political ideology. The state has taken over much of the traditional role of the family. Although in many families both parents work, the family has lost its productive function. The increasing provision of breakfast clubs and after-school activities for children in schools means that many families spend much less time together and eat fewer meals together. Nursery provision for infants and the encouraging of mothers back into the workforce shortly after childbirth means that children are increasingly being brought up not by their parents, but by the state's schools, and society as a whole increasingly sees this situation as normal. Increasingly, care of the aged in old people's homes, although not primarily run by the state, is nevertheless funded and regulated by the state on a large scale. And although cohabitation of parents and children together is still common, the loss of Christian ethics with regard to the liberalisation of divorce laws acceptance of extramarital sexual relationships and the redefinition of the family consequent upon these developments means that many parents do not stay together and many children do not live with both of their parents, do not have a stable family environment in which to grow up, no adequate father figure, an essential aspect of normal family life 
that cannot be provided by a series of the mother's live-in boyfriends, and indeed often may not even know who their fathers are. The consequent breakdown of the family as the basic social unit in society has a traumatic effect on the lives of the individuals involved, and especially on the children, and has produced an increasingly dysfunctional society. The pace at which these developments are progressing shows no signs of slowing down, as the first decade of the 21st century demonstrated, and the increases in taxes needed to fund the state's provision in all these areas weakens the family even further, forcing it into greater dependence on the state. Although Marx's communism has not been successful in achieving its goal of eradicating family life altogether, therefore, the rise of socialism has been one of the main causes of the decline of marriage and stable family life in those countries where it has had any influence, either as an individual ideology or as a form of economic and social organisation. According to Shafarovich, speaking of socialism as a phenomenon spanning the entire history of mankind, quote, In socialist states, we observe the abolition of private ownership of the means of production, state control of everyday life, and the subordination of the individual to the power of the bureaucracy. In socialist doctrines, we observe the destruction of private property, of religion, of the family and of marriage, and the introduction of wife-sharing, end quote. The antithesis that exists between socialist ideology and family life means that it is impossible for a truly socialist society to be, at the same time, a strongly family-based society. This fact is borne out not only by former socialist states, such as those of the Soviet Union, and communistic societies, such as monasteries and religious communes, but also by modern Western societies, such as Britain and other European states. The degree to which socialism has been, is being, or can be realised in any society, is commensurate with the decline of the family in that society. Socialist ideology, as well as communist ideology, is fundamentally inimical to the family and to the values and virtues presupposed and reinforced by the family. The implementation of socialist ideals politically and religiously has always been highly detrimental to the institution of marriage and to family life based upon it. Yet, without the acceptance, preservation and support of this institution, politically and religiously, society becomes dysfunctional, a fact demonstrated not only by our own socialist era, but by the socialist and communist experiments of previous ages and cultures. Section 4. Marxism, Libertarianism and Idolatry Marxism reduces human life to the economic aspect. The result is a form of idolatry in which the economic aspect provides meaning and purpose to human life and society. According to Leon Trotsky, quote, The task of socialism is to create a classless society based upon solidarity, and the harmonious satisfaction of all needs, end quote. Ultimately, a classless society necessitates, among other things, economic equality, and leaving aside the vexed question of definition, the harmonious satisfaction of all economic needs 
requires a general level of economic prosperity that has proved elusive in socialist societies. Granted, capitalism has not achieved these goals either, but society has advanced much nearer to these goals under the capitalist organization of production than under any other form of economic organization. Nevertheless, such goals are utopian and apply far more than the mere reorganization of economic production and distribution. This latter fact is evident both in the ideology of socialism and the practical outworking of socialist ideals. Socialism is a false religion in which the whole life of man and society is made to function around and derive its meaning from the economic aspect of life. Everything, therefore, is subordinated to this. Socialism is mammonism writ large. Unfortunately, this idolatry of the economic aspect of life has passed into Western society more generally and has become a dominant feature of the worldview of many who reject Marxism. For many libertarians, including Ludwig von Mises, the meaning of life is effectively reduced to the economic aspect. In the same way, the Protestant work ethic has been secularized, drained of its spiritual meaning, and turned into a form of idolatry, and even used as a form of slavery, rather than a tool of man's freedom and dominion under God. According to Jacques Ellul, quote, the bourgeois morality was, and is primarily, a morality of work and of métier. Work purifies, ennobles, it is a virtue and a remedy. Work is the only thing that makes life worthwhile. It replaces God and the life of the spirit, More precisely, it identifies God with work. Success becomes blessing. God expresses his satisfaction by distributing money to those who have worked well. Before this first of all virtues, the others fade into obscurity. If laziness was the mother of all vices, work was the father of all virtues. This attitude was carried so far that bourgeois civilization neglected every virtue but work. End quote. However, this reduction of man to the economic aspect was, says Elul, completed under the reign of the triumphant bourgeoisie, and therefore predates the rise of the revolutionary myth and Marxist communism. Section 5. Marxism, Fascism and Socialism It needs to be remembered that fascism is a form of socialism and has nothing in common ideologically with capitalism. Unfortunately, popular misunderstanding and misuse of the terms fascism and capitalism has obscured this fact. National socialism, that is, Hitler's version of fascism, was a policy of the German National Socialist Labour Party. The term Nazi is an abbreviation of the German word Nationalsozialistische. According to Ludwig von Mises, the conflation of these terms originated in communist propaganda. Quote, it is important to realize that fascism and Nazism were socialist dictatorships. The communists, both the registered members of the communist parties and the fellow travelers, stigmatized fascism and Nazism as the highest and last and most depraved stage of capitalism. 
This is in perfect agreement with their habit of calling every party which does not unconditionally surrender to the dictates of Marxism, even the German Social Democrats, the classical party of Marxism, hirelings of capitalism. It is of much greater consequence that the communists have succeeded in changing the semantic connotation of the word fascism. End quote. Similarly, the use of the term right-wing to describe capitalism, which is very common today, is misleading and completely fails to describe the true nature of capitalism and the kind of society that it presupposes and helps to maintain. Capitalism is not a right-wing phenomenon, since it refers to a system of economic organisation of society that has nothing in common with fascism, namely private ownership, both legal and economic, of the means of production. The term right-wing refers to fascism, and fascism is a term of socialism. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.